welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and what you're listening to is a pleasant April afternoon in Kyushu, Japan. And I've just walked through the back gate of Andrew Hall, who is a lecturer in modern Japanese history at Kyushu University. He's about to show me something behind his house, and just for context for this walk, we are joined by his Shiba Inu, an adorable small dog named Coco. I'm just going to stop and keep coming back and patting you, aren't I, dog? So Andrew lives near the coast in Kyushu, right at the edge of the bay. But between his house and the beach is a massive wall. It's not just any wall. This one was built by the Japanese in the 13th century to keep the Mongol armies away. And while Andrew is quick to point out that he is not an expert in the Mongol invasion, it's hard not to learn everything you can about a wall that's over your back fence. In the 1200s, Japan was ruled by a kind of a strange situation. There was an emperor in Kyoto, but he had no power, but he was there. He owned some land. He had a little bit of power, but not yeah. a lot. And there's the shogun who had taken over, powerful samurai lord family called the Minamoto, which had taken over a large chunk of power, not all the power, but a big chunk of power of the country in the 1180s. And so you had these shoguns, but after a couple of shoguns, the actual shogun himself became a powerless position as well, just like the emperor. <laughs> and who really ran things was the shogun's regent from a family called the Hojo family. This is in Kamakura near Tokyo. So they're running the country, and the country is split up into these other little domains where different samurai bands have certain rights to run things in those areas. And at that time, the Mongol Empire develops on the continent mm. with Genghis Khan, Temujin. After a little while comes his grandson, Kublai Khan, who is working very hard at conquering all of China. And around that time, he's basically everybody he can in the area, he's sending the messages saying, okay, it's time for you to acknowledge me as your Lord, be in a vassal relationship with me so that if I have a war, you're going to you know, provide some warriors and you're going to pay a certain amount of tribute to me and things like that. So he sends messages to this shogunate government in Japan that, okay, it's time for you to do this too. And they ignore it. So he sends an invasion from Korea, which he'd already conquered, to Japan. So was there the belief that the separation of distance the water, while not a huge amount of distance by any means of it, would mean that Japan's not a priority? Was there a thought that there's safety in that separation from the mainland? Well, that's something. I mean, the, the Mongols were not a seafaring people at all, right? They'd never never dealt with the sea at all. Yeah. Uh, but they had conquered Korea, which did have seafaring technology and had a navy. Mm. So they used them, basically, as their agents in this invasion. So the troops were a mixture of different kinds of Mongol and Korean and Maybe Chinese troops too, but the Navy was basically a Korean Navy. Now, there's going to be two invasions. Where do they invade? This Fukuoka Hakata area. This is this great natural port on the side of Japan that's facing the continent. This is definitely the place you want to be. The capital of the region, Dazaifu, is just down at the end of this valley. This is some of the best farmland in the area. This is where the most of the population is. This is definitely the most valuable area on this side of Japan. And so it's the natural place to invade if you're coming from the continent. So this is the place where invasion is going to happen. And indeed, they did in 1274. 
the Mongols invade, first large island called Tsushima, that's between Korea and Japan. They take Tsushima and slaughter all the warriors that are there. And then they move on to these Iki Islands, which is the next step. And from the Iki Islands is like their main base. It's almost just like right outside this bay. So they're able to send ships all over this area and reconquer it and figure out where things are. And they land at the main port of Hakata and have a series of battles and are doing pretty good. They're winning battles and are driving the samurai back. And it looks like they could be marching down to Dezaifu. But at the end of the day, I mean, this is all new territory for them. They probably were a little not exactly sure where they were, right? And they had no experience in Japan. So they decide to go back to their ships after winning this one victory and the assumption that they're going to attack again the next day because they're right here on the coast where they've won these battles. They go back to their ships and the storm strikes. A bunch of the ships are destroyed. We don't know exactly why, but the decision is made to call off the invasion at that point. You know, maybe they had won some victories, but it was tougher than they thought, I think. The Japanese samurai were maybe not as well organized in like large numbers, but they were good fighters. It was quite difficult. Mongols had lost a lot of people as well. And then with the storm, the decision is they leave and they send ambassadors again saying, okay, now we're going to come back with a larger invasion force if you don't do what we say. You need to become our vassals. Become our vassals, yeah. yeah. This time, they don't just ignore the ambassadors, they cut their heads off. Whoa. They said, no, we're not dealing with you at all. So Kublai Khan is, like, I assume, furious, and he's getting ready for another invasion. But he's also pretty busy cleaning up the remnants of the Song dynasty in China. Keeps him busy for the next several years. But by 1281, so seven years later, a second larger attack force is sent. This time two fleets, one coming from Korea, one coming from China. That, again, they meet in the Iki Islands and are getting ready to invade. Now, during these seven years, the shogun has ordered the building of a wall all along the coast. Not a huge wall, about two meters high, four meters wide. So hard enough that a, a horse, and you know, again, the Mongols are horse riding people and they're bringing horses in this invasion fleet. Not easy for a horse to just you know, jump over this thing. Everywhere you know, where there's not already a mountain, they're building this wall. Now here we are at Imazu, in between these two mountains. There's a nice long stretch here of beach, very nice, we'll see in a second. The wall is built here. Now, you can, here's a map we're looking at, and it's got dotted lines on where we believe the wall was. The red lines are places where they found traces of the wall today. Because, of course, once the wall, the invasion's done after 1281, the wall is not needed anymore. I mean, they still use it, they're still waiting for an invasion for a while, but by you get into the 1300s, it's no longer needed, and locals, you know, take a rock for building their house or whatever. And so the heavily populated areas, it's gone. It's no longer there. There's, you know, archaeologists haven't found any traces of it, except for in these few little places. Here is a relatively unpopulated area, and so the wall here pretty much exists as it did. Now, it was covered up by dirt and things over the years, so it was gone. But in around 1910, Kyushu University was created, and they had a humanities department there that included historians and archaeologists. So I guess one of the first things they did was I bet you that wall is right around here, you know? There's record that Imazu, the wall was there. Here's Imazu, let's search around here. So they do archeology span work around here, and sure enough, they found a large section. So by far the largest section of the wall that they've recovered is right here. So we're gonna go walk by that now. Come on, Doug. When they first were digging here, this is kind of the top of the wall. Yeah, oh, okay. As, yeah. They, as, as it would have been. We're gonna go see over here, and apparently the ocean was closer at that point, and 
the ground was a little bit lower. So as it is now, we're walking on the same level as the top of the wall. Yeah. But, you know, at that time, the ground surface would have been about two meters lower than this. You know, all these rocks, these are the actual rocks that were found here. And this, as we see over here, this, this full section of the wall that's been totally excavated, those are all the actual rocks of the wall in the, in the exact position that, that they were found. Now, they had different samurai chieftains would be basically given the responsibility of building the wall and then defending the wall in a certain chunk of area. And so, you know, the studies of the different sections of the wall, there's different architectural styles done in different places. And All you can right. kind of, and sometimes you'll see basically a line like, okay, here's this one kind here and one kind here. And you can say, okay, well, this is a different lord. The rocks are a little bit different. They're getting from, from a different place, even though they're right next to each other. If you look at it from above, uh, aerial pictures of it, you can see it kind of goes like a snake a little bit. It shows how different people were in charge of different areas. They would, one person would go straight for a little bit, and the next person would go, and it would go a little bit off to the left of the person that did it before, and then another person would. So it kind of twists back and forth a little bit. Not a nice straight line. So in Australia, we call that a, a fence dispute. <laughs> now, this isn't the first defensive wall that the Mongols would have come across. Famously, there's a much more formidable wall that you may have heard about in China, which they had overcome. Japan, though, had a few advantages. They were an island, there were other priorities for the Mongols, and perhaps the wall in its own way was just one challenge too many for those who reached the shores of Kyushu. Did this ever see any action, or was it just mostly to intimidate or prove a point to the Mongols? So it's made between the two invasions, and the Mongols do evade again in 1281, with, yeah. a, much, with a larger fleet and a larger group. It appears there probably was some fighting in this area, maybe not a major battle in this area. The Japanese were more ready. They had some of their own ships. So there was a lot of skirmishes at sea, um, around the Iki Islands. There were some landings here and there, and I think there was a landing here. So I think there was at least some fighting, but it was not like a major invasion push right here, mm. which also makes sense because it's not a big population area. The Japanese are going to do a lot better fighting. They're a lot more prepared. They're able to sink several of the Mongol ships. And then again, another storm comes, another typhoon comes. Mm. Now there's a lot of debate about exactly how much was it the typhoons that defeated the Mongols. Japanese religious groups, various Buddhist and Shinto groups, were paid to pray for victory at the time. You look at the, the shogun government's records, and they talk about the various things they do. Building the wall, they said, here's the thing, here's the money we spent, here's the money we spent on prayers. And that was a big part of their strategy. Their records tend to emphasize the storm, right? That this natural event came based on their prayers that ah. defeats the Mongols. Yeah. While you look at some of the samurai records who, who fought, they emphasize, of course, their own fighting, you know, and their own ability to defeat them. So traditionally, there's been a focus on the storms as in the defeat. But recent scholars like Thomas Conlon have focused on the samurai warriors and yeah. how they're able to defeat them with their, their strategy and their ability. Yeah. So when you look up the defensive wall at Hakata in the history books, there's actually a good contemporary illustration of it. It was commissioned by a retainer named Takazaki Suenaga to display his contribution to the battle. They've actually put this illustration on a sign next to the wall so you can see it in action, which I imagine would have pleased Takazaki. Now there's one samurai in particular who's interesting, a guy named Takizaki. He was a samurai from Kyushu. He was in charge of, of a certain area. Not a high-ranking lord. He was what's called a Gokenin. He had maybe a dozen warriors under him. But he fought in some of these battles in, around the Hakata area. And afterwards, he felt like he hadn't been paid enough. He felt like he didn't get the rewards that he was deserved for someone who had fought in these battles. So he travels up to Kamakura 
sells his horse and his saddle, which is the thing that he needs to fight. But he, he says, this is worth it to go and make my case. And apparently he goes up there and is just annoying as could be. Over and over again, he comes and tells us these things he did and talks about the witnesses that could testify to what he did. And finally, he does get rewarded. They say, fine, we're going to give you this reward. He's given a new horse and he's given this money. And he still has the responsibility to defend this, this area here in Hakata. He fights in the second battle as well. And after the second battle, he commissions artists to draw this scroll of the various battles that he was in. And this is probably the best record that we have of these battles. This guy who wanted to make sure that this record was kept, that he could be paid uh, afterwards. And this is, we think that this was used after the second battle to say, here's all these things I did. Please remember this so that I can keep getting the rewards that I'm supposed to get. And so there's there's these beautiful scrolls. And we see, you know, lots of detail of of the, the kind of armor, the kind of weapons that the samurai used and that the Mongols used. We see representations of their guns, which the Japanese had never seen before. The the Mongols had gunpowder. They shot these projectiles. This is the record that we have of these things. So if you ever see like pictures of the invasion, it's almost always uses pictures from this scroll. The defensive wall did not see a lot of battle action, but perhaps the fact it was there proved to be enough. The Mongols would ultimately decide that there were better things to worry about, and after a second attempt at invasion, they never returned. There was landings that were done, especially in the Hakata area, that seemed to have been stopped there at the beach. Mm. They went back to the ships, and they, they, they kind of poked around other areas, looking for other harbors that might be better landings. And during that time, while they're, they're going around, they, there's, a, there's a big battle with some Japanese ships, uh, where the Japanese are pretty successful, and then the second storm hits, yeah. and they leave for good. So yeah, they seem to have been stopped at the beach where these battles happened. And it looks like there was some, at least some skirmishes on this wall right here as well. Why was that it for the invasion? Why wasn't there a third push and more dead ambassadors and an escalation of relationships at that point? There was certainly a threat of that. And I think Kublai Khan intended to do that again. He had a lot going on. He had a big big empire. He kept sending more ambassadors, or more messages at least, to saying, you know, we're going to attack again, and demanding the Japanese submit to him for several years. For several years after that, um, and the Japanese had to keep these walls manned with samurai for several years after that as well. It was really, it's another 30, 40 years before they finally start relaxing. Yeah. Uh, he was busy with other things. There was internal challenges to his rule from other Mongol princes they had to worry about. Some big battles on, in Burma they had to worry about, some other areas. And it sounds like he just got busy with other things. And, you know, these invasions were unsuccessful. It may have been frustrating dealing with the Navy that the Mongols had never had to deal with before. And I guess on the list of things to do, this just never got back up to number one. Yeah, yeah, okay. And after that, you know, the, the Mongol Empire starts going to decline yeah. after Kublai Khan's death. There's a lot of civic pride evident in this excavated stretch of wall. It's kept clean and tidy by the local residents and schools, and it represents independence and the strength of the samurai in the area. It's a sentiment that the Japanese are keen to emphasize and also expressed in a nearby monument. Yeah. So there's this monument over at the top of the street, kind of at the end of where the wall would have been. And around the time that they had done this excavation of the wall, they, they found the wall. And this is 1912. This is a time of growing nationalism in Japan. You know, they'd successfully defeated the Russians in one war. 
there's a sense of, you know, we're strong, and there's a lot of interest in their past history. The, they wanted to use the warriors of the past as an example to the warriors of today. You know, they were kind of reviving this myth of a samurai, mm. and they were kind of creating a myth, basically, of a samurai that never existed. For instance, samurai who fought loyally for the emperor. Very few samurai ever fought loyally for the emperor because the emperor was almost never a person of any political power. Yeah. With a, a few exceptions, usually the samurai were fighting just for their own local lord and for their own good. But in the early 20th century, they start recreating this, or creating this myth of samurai who are fighting for the emperor, and fighting for these larger causes, and we're not self-interested at all, but we're interested in these higher causes, which is almost never true. They're almost always self-interested warriors. Mm. So they're creating various monuments of historical figures all over the place. So up here, there's going to be a monument to the people who died in the battle against the Mongols. And it's a big, beautiful monument. Well, it's an okay monument. And it was built in 1915. So just like three years after they were doing this excavation here. And it was actually built by German prisoners of war. This is during World War I. Japan had declared war as, as allies of the British. And they very quickly were able to overrun the small German holdings in the South Pacific and in China. Of course, the Germans were busy elsewhere, so they, they didn't put much into defending these places. So they had a few German prisoners, which were kept nearby in a city called Kurume. And they were treated very well, apparently. The Germans were actually had a strong alliance with the Japanese as well. I mean, not at this moment, not an actual military alliance, but the Japanese military was very much based on the German military model. Well, from the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, lots of Japanese had gone to Germany to study the German military system. And also, a lot of politicians, bureaucrats, went to Germany to study the uh, German imperial system that the Japanese based their imperial system on. So there's a lot of connection between Germany and Japan. So these German prisoners, I think, were, were treated very well, and they, they had their own orchestra that, that performed, things like that. But anyways, a, a group of German prisoners of war were brought here. They were the labor that built this monument to the people who died in this fight with the Mongols. And right next to it is a war memorial, very small war memorial, for the people from this neighborhood, Imazu, who died in various wars. There's an older memorial that has the people who died in the Seinan War, which was a, a, a local civil war in the 1870s, and then the ones who died in the war against China in 1894-95, and the war against Russia in 1904-1905. And it was only about two people in each one. You know, this is a small neighborhood, Imazu. You're not going to expect a lot of troops. And then there's a newer version that included the people who died in the Second World War. And that's got so many names. You know, 60 names in it. You know, again, this is a pretty small neighborhood. So I'm thinking, sick, you know, of all the young men, 60 young men from this neighborhood died in the Second World War. Just goes to show how, how destructive that war was and how many people were killed. I've seen other memorials from neighborhoods where it's done by year, broken down by year, what year they died in, starting in 1931. You get to 1939, 1940, 1941, still pretty small. You get down to the end of 1943, and it's about a quarter of it. And then 1944 is about another quarter. 1945, the nine months of the war, is the whole bottom half. Yeah. So that last year was, was the year of great destruction. That was Andrew Hall, Associate Professor of East Asian History at Kyushu University, and you have been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on any readily available podcatching platform. You can follow Latrobe Asia on Twitter. We are at Latrobe Asia. This podcast was recorded in Kyushu, Japan, 
and produced at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.